This is Kutsia Naki, and welcome to the second episode of Down to the Struts. Today, we'll listen in on my conversation with Sara Acevedo. Sara is a scholar, activist, and assistant professor of disability studies at Miami University in Ohio. Her work lies at the intersection of disability studies, anthropology, spatial politics, and neurodiversity specializing in critical disability studies. This was a fascinating conversation about disability and the power of language. Okay, let's get down to it. Thank you so much, Sara, for joining us. I am really delighted to have you on Down to the Struts today. I wanted to start by asking you to share a little bit about yourself, your disability journey, how it led you to your interest in linguistics and your work at the intersection of anthropology and social change. Thank you so much for having me, Kutsia. I think that this is a great project. I'll do my best to answer your questions. So my journey with disability, I I like to talk about my journey with disability studies. I think that makes more sense for me. I was studying um, French linguistics in Spain. I was born and raised in Colombia, but I went to Spain for my undergrad. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to come to the United States to a summer camp that served disabled adults from 18 all the way to 80 or something like that. And I did that for five years. And then at the end of those five years or a little before that, I thought, you know, I really want to do justice to this hand-on experience that I've had working with disabled people in this sort of recreational setting And based on conversations I had with people who went to camp, I just really wanted to know more and actually be fully educated. I mean, to the extent possible, you're never fully educated, but I really wanted to be um, educated on the topic. And I decided to change the course of my professional career. And I applied for graduate degree in disability studies in a bunch of different places. Uh, but I decided to come to Philadelphia Temple University. I had wonderful professors there and they really (laughs) radicalized me. It was not difficult for me to become radicalized around disability politics, but that's where it all started, I'll say. So then my journey continued to get a master's in uh, liberal arts with a focus on disability studies. And that was also a temple. And then I moved to San Francisco, where I got my uh, doctoral degree in anthropology and social change with a focus on disability justice. So that's kind of how things started. That's a really incredible story. And, and so much of it really resonates with me as someone who's pretty involved in adaptive sports. I recognize the power that recreational activity can have in bringing people together in general, but also a disability community. I think as we've discussed previously when we've spoken, I graduated from Temple Law School, so that's an institution that I spent some time at as well. So can you tell us a little bit about your activism and your scholarship and how that was informed by the experiences you had in your education and in your life up to that? Like I said, I became very into disability politics very early on when I first encountered disability studies. It wasn't long before I was building a community and reaching out and building networks and, you know, communicating with others and across disability and and across other identities that are marginalized. 
So I started that journey in 2009. So it's been a while that I've been doing this and I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I think that before really coming onto my own disability identity, I did a lot of work, groundwork to then get me to a point where I was really ready to understand my own disability. I always knew I was neurodivergent. I just didn't have the language for it. And so I saw myself reflected in so many of my peers in so many ways. And finally, when I was conducting research with autistic community scholars and educators in Berkeley, I uh, finally came to identify myself as an autistic person um, and then pursued a formal diagnosis, um, mostly to have access to accommodations and services that I wouldn't have had access if I didn't pursue a diagnosis. And that's very controversial, right? Because it really is seeking validation from a quote medical expert when we ourselves know ourselves better, so much better than what somebody else could know about us based on a book, you know, in a textbook or an anatomy class. I mean, I'm not saying that medical experts um, are completely clueless, but they are sometimes when it comes to other people's lived experiences and especially listening, you know, listening to your own experiences and how you, how you reflect those and how you experience those and relate them and convey them. And I had already started doing work on neurodiversity before I started my dissertation process. So I became more and more involved. And uh, right now my work is really fully drawing from critical autism studies and of course, critical disability studies. That's really helpful, Sada. And there's so much to unpack in what you just described. So you, you use the term autistic and neurodivergent a few times. And I want to get back to those terms, you know, because this is a conversation about language and disability and how we talk about disability both within our disability communities and, and also when relating to non-disabled people. And you really also touched on something else that's really important is this idea of the medical model of disability, which relates to the scientific or medical aspect of a disease or a condition that people have versus the social model of disability. So for example, using my own experience, if you were to describe my medical condition and accurate description of that would be visually impaired as I am not fully blind. I have some usable vision, so mm -hmm. that's accurate. However, increasingly in my own journey, I have come to identify myself as blind and I, I mm -hmm. use the term blind because mm -hmm. it's a it's a sort of socio-political choice that I'm making. It's an, it's an identity that I have. It's a community that I'm part of. So I, I noticed the same sort of way in which you're using these terms that are kind of go beyond the medicalization of whatever our respective conditions may be. So I think that's, that's really interesting. So that leads me to my, my next question, which is, you know, why is language important for disabled people in having autonomy and agency for themselves? In our world in general, language is really taken for granted as just a bunch of symbols coming together to form representations of what it means to be human and what it means to be alive and what it means to exist in the world. And 
navigate the world. But really, language has so much power. Language is really an institution of power. Uh, it carries a lot of weight. It carries potential for liberation, as is, as it has been, uh, you know, undertaken and reclaimed by disabled communities. And it has potential for brutalization of communities, you know, and our history has really been impacted by these labels that are now so casually thrown around by non-disabled people in the non-disabled world who are mostly unaware of the histories of these terms and really have established some sort of linguistic distance from um, the history of these terms, which is really like a, a way of understanding language as a disembodied sort of phenomenon, or as opposed to really uh, language being a, a something that is grounded in history and it's grounded in culture and it's grounded in um, the different ways in which we have approached struggle and have fought against um, oppression. Those are all really great points and lead me to my next question, which is in a sense asking to provide some examples of, of what you were describing. So I'm curious if you can share a little bit with our listeners about the history of the word disability itself and what role it played in the disability rights movement. You know, it goes back to what you're discussing before in terms of this uh, stark difference between focus on the medicalization of the body, medicalization of uh, impairment versus really a focus on the structures that really make meaning of impairment and, and turn it into a negative social category through the use of labels that are mostly, of course, medical and diagnostic so the history of any term is not really cut and dry. It's not that easy to really look for a quote origin of a word or a term as it has so many, you know, there are so many elements to it that are unknown to us as with everything else, you know, in the world. But I would say that there is this transition from the medical model of disability to really the social model of disability. And we're way beyond social model of disability right now. Um, but I would say that that uh, first distinction that was made by disabled sociologists who were the ones who following on community efforts, thinking about the social experience of disability in the UK was this idea that there is a dis distinction between the body understood as an individual problem, so a biological individual problem, and the idea of disability being a process. So there is this process of disablement that occurs when they argue uh, the negative socialization of impairment. But then the word, of course, has been reclaimed by our communities in ways that, for instance, the word crib has been reclaimed by our community. Um, so in that sense, there is a historical transition, it's not very clear you know, when it really occurred, but it took, it took place around the, I would say the eighties when this difference was really made sort of clear, even, you know, in our, in activist circles and scholarly uh, communities as well. So most people are not as familiar with the term crip. Can you talk a little bit about, again, as you mentioned, it's really hard to trace the history of these words to a single source. So you talk about this process of reclamation, right? So I imagine, if, if I understand you correctly, with CRIP, it started out as being sort of a, a term that was used negatively that was then reclaimed or reappropriated by the disability community. So can you say a little bit about 
the word crip, what it meant in the past, what it means today, and just tell us a little bit about that, because I think folks are a little less familiar with that term. Sure. So it's an abbreviation of crippled, which refers more specifically to a physical disability. And it's being reclaimed in such amazing ways. And then it's derived into this amazing compound words such as cryptum or cryptomology or so many other really iterations of the word that really disempower that negative historical connotation and really invest the word with so much cultural meaning and even in sensual and erotic meaning too. And it's been the components of performance art. So you think about this uh, Sense and Valid, for instance, the troupe of artists of color who really emphasize or center the gender non-conforming experiences and, and non-binary experiences. So his claim of the body, the disabled body, is a sensual, um, sexual, erotic side of pleasure as well. So, uh, you know, Crip is really related to the arts. It has a lot of history in and rooted in the arts, as we know the term today is being reclaimed by uh, disabled artists. That's really interesting. I didn't recognize the connection between the word crip being used in, in an artistic concept. I've also heard of it in a political context in campaigns, for example, hashtag crip the vote, I understand essentially connotes making voting accessible for people with disabilities. I would say that the way in which artistic iterations of crip really manifest is it's utterly political. It's utterly political. So, you know, the artistic, the political, the, the, the sensual, the embodied, they're all part of our history and they're an active part of the way that we um, appear in the world and, and the way that we gather together in collectivity around our various identities. And I would say any identity that is contested is political. And of course, disability is a very contested identity. Yes, and that is a great segue into another topic that I, I wanted to cover with you, which is there's a lot of debate between this concept of person-first language and identity-first language. So for listeners not familiar with those concepts, that, that is the difference between, for example, the term person with a disability and disabled person. Mm -hmm. Likewise, when we talk about what you and I have been referring to as the non-disabled world or non-disabled people, there's a debate between using that term versus able-bodied. So can you talk a little bit about these debates and, and what they mean for disability rights and the disability culture? Sure. I do want to say that I move away from uh, the rights discourse. I, I work within the justice discourse, so disability justice more than disability rights. And yeah, sure. So, you know, this debate, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty old and it's pretty steeped in our community's history. And I've written about this before and I am constantly teaching this to my students who come from uh, helping professions uh, backgrounds and take this classes in disability studies as part of their minor and they encounter this idea that reclaiming a, a disability identity isn't something wrong or bad and that disability is not a bad word and that we need to uh, get away from or hide from 
actually the contrary. And, you know, this came about with the autistic movement of the 90s here in the United States, really foregrounding uh, the idea of a process of disablement with the force of the social model within that framework and really thinking about how these processes are not natural or, or transcendent, but they are actually rooted in his constructed as opposed to just existing in a vacuum with no impact from uh, social agents, right? So emphasizing on this idea of disablement as a process really brings this idea to, to the center stage that we are not disabled by our bodies themselves, but actually by the structures and policies and, and interactions and personal and at the systemic level that really um, disable us. You know, that's also an idea that's been contested because you know, the very idea that disability does not reside in our bodies is actually something that is being contested by um, other models, such as the postmodern model or, or the psycho, psychosocial model of disability, which really understands disability as a construct, but also as an embodied lived experience. So for instance, I live with chronic illness. I wouldn't say that my chronic illness would disappear if the world was more accessible. It, it might make it easier for me to navigate the world as someone who lives with chronic pain, um, but it, the chronic pain wouldn't just automatically go away, right? So it's uh, disability studies has really um, gone back to really embrace this idea of a body that is vulnerable and that is, um, uh, you know, that it feels, that it senses, that it experiences pain and pleasure and joy and sadness and all of these things that really makes us human. So there was this move to leave aside this material or corporal or carnal um, experiences of the body. And at a time, at a political time, that was so imperative and important to really reclaim the humanity of disabled people that this engagement with the body or the carnality of the body was really set aside for, for a bit and then really, uh, really uh, embraced once again, really forcefully within um, our disability studies scholarship. So in other words, what you're saying is the, the person first language is this idea of, I want to not divorce my identity, but I am a person, but I yeah. have versus yes. identity first language, which is this embrace of I am a disabled person. This is part of my body that I am not ashamed of. It is. Yeah, it is. And it isn't. I mean, it's it's I, I would say it's both. So with person first, which is yes, it was that it came at a time of political unrest when activists were really trying to reassert or even assert the bare humanity of disabled people where we were not recognized as fully human. Um, so that was a time to really emphasize on the human aspect of our lives. And then it came a time when it, when it was really time to emphasize cultural polit and political aspects of our identity and our embodied experiences because they're not separate. They, they work in tandem and are entangled, right? So person first, really was um, historically weaponized in a sense to really um, bring awareness to the idea that disabled people are people. Wow, what a realization. Um, and then the, the move to, toward using identity first language was really to emphasize on disability as a process, as opposed to some sort of like transcendent identity.
I really like that because it leaves space for both of these terms and it places everything in its historical context. So I, I really appreciate that explanation. And then likewise, turning to the other set of terms I was mentioning earlier, I'm curious if you have a similar perspective or could explain the idea of talking about able-bodied people versus the move to talking about non-disabled. Sure, sure. So this comes from the idea that the more that we center ability as the ideal of humanity, yeah, mm -hmm. the more then we are going to move away from the existence of bodily difference and bodily variation as an inherent part of the human experience, right? So that talking about able-bodied really recenters ability as opposed to really thinking in terms of disabled and non-disabled bodies. And those can be polarizing categories and they are in the disability experience is so fluid that to really claim non-disability versus disability in the stark opposition, I'm wary of that. Uh, I think that our bodies are fluid and our identities are fluid. And so the explanation or one of the explanations of the push for using non-disabled versus able-bodied is decentering ability as the ideal of humanity. This really tracks with my own personal experience as someone, you use the word fluidity, I think that that's very accurate. So I am someone who has a degenerative condition. So I lost vision over time mm -hmm. and the way that I talked about that morphed over time. And part of that was my own coming into consciousness and my own radicalization, if you will. And part of it was also that my actual experience of the world was a fluid thing and changing over uh -huh. the course of many years. So I, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And I, I appreciate the idea of the decentering of the able-bodied center. I think there's a parallel in our discussions of racial justice in terms of decentering whiteness as yeah. the center point of our culture. So yeah. I think there's a lot of parallels there. Uh, I wanted to turn back to something you were talking about earlier, because I think it's really important and it, it didn't fall into the initial scope of this conversation, but I, I think it's a really key point and it relates to language. Mm -hmm. You talked about the distinction between rights and justice and talking about oh, yeah. disability rights versus justice. So can you pack that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, there's so many differences and, and, and they're also historical. It's all a matter of history. It's not, it's, it's not um, this one's better and that one's worse and this one. No, they come at certain political times within specific historical periods in which one or the other iteration of disability politics has been uh, needed. So at the time where disability rights were really being championed by early activists was at a time again that our rights were not even considered to be as important as other people's rights. So it was really important to, to pursue that line of activism where there would be this ne negotiation with state and with the government in terms of really asserting rights that were naturally quote unquote or organically granted to citizens you know across the board except for disabled citizens it was important at the time to really emphasize on this idea of recognition and rights within a structure and a legal and a policy system whereas at the time where we are and 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 the disability justice movement uh, has been around for a while now and it was initiated by queer disabled uh, activists of color performers uh, you know since invalid group where 
one of the, um, the initiators of the movement and then it has expanded exponentially in the United States and, and, and in some other places as well. So, so there is a difference between what it means to have access to rights which are exist within this political arena that relates to law and policy and to identify with justice at every single level of our existence. So not only access to rights, but access to, our, to culture, to our own definition of culture and to our own definition of ourselves within that culture, you know, and access to political experiences and to political um, self-identification and togetherness and, and collective action, those elements are really not considered within the rights narrative. And one of the most, most important things that's at the center of disability justice is that it recognizes multiple issue politics, as was um, coined by Audre Lorde, right? She said, we do not lead single issue lives. So our politics, you know, I'm paraphrasing, of course, we do not lead single issue lives. So our politics cannot be single issue politics. Disability justice really emphasizes disability at the intersection of other marginalized identities, such as race and, and gender expression and identity and sexual orientation and expression, ethnicity, citizenship status, religious practice, political affiliation, you know, and, and, and so many other um, identities that fall within those that are um, ex marginalized from conversations, not only in terms of rights, but in terms of culture. That absolutely makes sense, Sara, and, and resonates very much with what this podcast is trying to accomplish, which is to help people view disability as part of a multifaceted intersectional lens by which to look at the world. So I, I think that's that's a really great articulation, and I, I'm really glad that we were able to touch on this and talk about the disability justice movement a little bit more as it has evolved. So with all of that said, you know, what advice would you give to a non-disabled community about using language and mm -hmm. building a vocabulary around inclusion for disabled people. That's another thing. I'm, I'm not a very much, um, I don't work very much within the context of inclusion. I work with the context of access once again, because the idea of inclusion is limited to those rights, right? And to be included within a system that is set to be the system, right? So fitting mm. us in within a structure that we did not participate in, 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 in building and in deciding mm -hmm. and in, in participating um, as autonomous agents to me is, it's something that I want to move away from, not from the acts that further inclusivity, but this idea of inclusion as the top thing for us to achieve you know, versus, versus this access in every aspect of everyday life is what I really stand for, you know, and this iteration of disability justice activists like Alice Wong and um, Nia Mingus and Sandy Ho, who coined the, the, the hashtag access is love, right? Access is so much more than inclusion. 
um, goes way beyond the built environment. Again, it is access to political, you know, affiliation and to the constructing our own knowledge and our sense of meaning and what our histories really tell about the story and the and the lives of disabled people in different parts of the world. So I would say that the advice that I that I would give to my students is really read from disabled people. Seek materials authored by disabled people. Seek content, whether at the level of grassroots activism or the scholarly world. Pursue information that you're getting directly from the source, so to speak. There's so much mediation of disability, the disability identity out there. There's always this, this filtering um, effect that disability has because it's understood as something shameful or we still, we are still dealing with these understandings of disability. They're not a matter of the past, right? So there's a lot of euphemisms around the, around the word disability too, which are so very offensive, you know, but they, these come uh, from ignorance, you know, sometimes willful ignorance. So I do tell my students, um, it is so important for people who uh, currently identify as non-disabled to seek out this, to educate themselves, really to, to not rely on disabled people to educate them at every, at every step of their journey, so to speak into consciousness, but really to seek out the sources that will inform you and those will be those authored by disabled people ourselves. That's really excellent advice and your comments really were a moment of awakening for me. I think the common language of today has been, you know, the, the DEI, so diversity, equity, inclusion. Yes. And yes. I, I love your exposition of the term inclusion as again, inclusion into an able-centric system and the idea of access is more acknowledging that that system is able-centric and then creating access as an act of love. So I really, I really like that framing. I think it makes a lot of sense. And then I just wanted to also reference the point you were making earlier about the sort of euphemistic language. So some oh, yeah. examples of that include differently abled and things like that so for for non-disabled people it's it, there's a there's actually a hashtag i believe it says it's hashtag say the word it's not scary it's not it is a political identity and it has meaning that is powerful uh and uh in in a positive way and and so i i'm really glad you pointed that out as well so on the on the point of reading i think there is definitely a balance you, you're right people should go and seek out the information and be proactive but i i would like to ask the question because you are a scholar and because you have such a bird's eye view of this space is there anything in particular at this moment you would recommend to people any recommended reading from from Sara Acevedo absolutely the first thing that I recommend you go read are the uh, 10 principles of disability justice by since invalid and everything else that is on their website one of their um, their book which is now in their second edition, uh, Skin, Tooth and Bone, The Basis of Movement is Our People, is really fundamental reading for anyone who really wants to know about disability beyond what the world thinks disability is or should be. I also recommend Care Work by Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samaya Singha, I hope I said it right, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, 
I will also recommend the work of Mia Mingus in Leaving Evidence, her blog, Leaving Evidence. And Alice Wong, of course, Alice Wong has a new book out there. And I mostly, I always recommend materials by disabled people of color uh, because that's my closest community. I'm part of that community. And uh, I just find that um, full and complete alignment with their disability politics. Yeah, and the book by Alice Wong is called Disability Visibility. Yeah. I, really, I recently read it. It's a collection of essays, and it is incredibly, incredibly mm -hmm. powerful. Yeah, and, and the title, Disability Visibility, right? Alice had, does a huge project, and it still exists um, in, the, in a podcast format. And um, it, it existed as a Facebook um, group for many, many years. And now the book is out there, and I can't wait to read it. I cannot wait to have some space of some sort to breathe and read that book um but yeah so thank you so much for sharing the title we will definitely share links to these resources that sada has mentioned in our show notes so that folks can go back and and access those materials or, or know where to find them or purchase them etc so in the beginning i i was like kind of uh, warming up and trying to get into this topic so if, if there's a lot of uh it's because my brain goes everywhere not that i have to justify it but just to share it with with people who will be listening to this. You know, I also I went on a tangent, which is what I do. That's just my brain works that way. And you asked me about autism and neurodivergence. And I think that I answered partially some of what you wanted to know. But if you want to ask me one last thing about that, I, I can absolutely touch on that. Wonderful. I, I will take you up on that. So can you talk, can you tell us about the term neurodivergent and, and its origin and what it means to you? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, <laughs> neurodivergent specifically was coined by an autistic activist called Cassiana Sasumas. Uh, and I hope I said it correctly because I've never um, heard of heard it um, uttered by somebody else. So I hope I said it correctly. And the term is really pointing to how neurodiversity exists in the world as much as, and it's akin to biodiversity. There is this proven scientific research that demonstrate that all of our brains are wired differently. And so the idea that the world is neurodiverse that's just what it is. Our world is our world is understood in terms of biodiversity, and so not, neurodiversity is akin to that understanding. Neurodivergent refers to the specific individual experience of that um, neurodiversity, if that makes sense, right? So I am neurodivergent, as opposed to I am neurodiverse. Um, this is what uh, this activist coined, and many other autistic activists have followed on that. Other I simply prefer the, the term neurodiverse and to me that's perfectly valuable and valid everybody gets to choose i mean if they're part of the community i think they get to choose how to identify and there are things i wouldn't agree with but that is not my place to tell another disabled person how to identify that's a, an origin of it and neurodiversity as a term coined by sociologist judith singer in um, 19 in the 1980s late 1980s one of the first sort of coinages of the word and the understanding of neurological difference or neurological divergence. So that's where, where neurodivergent comes from. So I, I say I'm multiply neurodivergent because I'm not only autistic, I'm other things and they're integral part of my identity. Uh, so I don't have it. I don't have them. I am it. I am them, uh, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we went back and talked about that a little bit more. Thank you for, for sharing that. I personally learned a great deal from that explanation, and I hope that others do as well. So with that, uh, thank you again, Sada. I will link to the materials that you referenced and to your bio as well in the show notes so that people can learn a little bit more about you. And uh, thanks again for joining me. Thank you for joining me for the second episode of Down to the Struts. You can find more information about the podcast, including transcripts, at www.downtothestruts.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Anna Wu, Avery Annapole, Adrian Kong, Claire Shanley, and Ilana Nevins. Thanks again for listening, and I'm looking forward to our next episode so we can get back down to it. Mm-hmm.